Hello and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast, focused on Bitcoin and Austrian economics. I'm your host, Stefan Levera. This is episode 73 with Tamash Blumer, and he has a really interesting and varied background. I'll let him get into it as part of the interview. And uh, it's just a really wide-ranging conversation talking about Bitcoin scaling, Rust Bitcoin, threats to Bitcoin, and also Bitcoin data science. Here's the interview. Thomas, welcome to the show. I've um, I've heard a lot about you, and obviously, I know you've got quite a storied and long history in Bitcoin. So, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm very glad to be with you. Excellent. So, look, uh, I know some of my listeners might not know as much about you, and I know you've recently done a lot of work with um, Adamant Capital and data science. But I know you've got a bit of a history in Bitcoin. Can you just give the listeners a bit of a background on yourself? Um, well. Um... I started quite early with uh, with cryptography. I had, a very, uh, had an interest in it and, and worked in on PGP long back in the nineties. And uh, then I worked in uh, investment banking, um, doing a, uh, creating pricing models uh, for credit derivatives and similar, which later on uh, crossed again my career. And then uh, did trading automation there, portfolio risk management, and very lately. Um, I uh, worked on a ledger system of a big investment bank, and that's where I, I, I basically uh, met Bitcoin and recognized that that's, that's actually the ledger that, that really sparks my interest. Uh, so I, I quit there and uh, built uh, Bitcoin Enterprises. The very first one was Bits of Proof, which was a, an implementation of the Bitcoin protocol uh, in a manner uh, uh, that was uh, more suitable to integrate in an enterprise system. I had the idea at that time that this could be offered as a service. It certainly didn't work out, but uh, it helped me to, to deploy a few interesting services, uh, like I created an exchange and a, and a, a payment system. And also the, the very first backend of the Trezor hardware wallet was was uh, basically powered by Bits of Proof. Then, uh, then I used the software to uh, this software to to run uh, one of the biggest uh, mining operations at CoinTerra. Um, uh, which was quite an experience uh, from uh, not from from the uh, from that industry. Um, uh, unfortunately, this this um, this got uh, got busted by the by the low Bitcoin price in two thousand fourteen. Um, then I uh, joined uh, Digital Asset, uh, which was uh, at that time led by Blight Masters, who I knew from the very early days of, of investment banking. Um, and the digital asset, I worked um, mostly on um, how to um, uh, how to uh, combine the the, uh, the Bitcoin uh, type of ledger, what they call the blockchain, uh, with um, with a smart contract language that we were developing the digital asset that I think is really outstanding uh, to deploy this in in, in traditional financial services um, like the ASX exchange, which is. Uh, the, the digital assets ASX product project is probably one of the, uh, or even the biggest uh, real life uh, deployment of the technology. Um, uh, then I um, quit a digital asset for for uh, purely for health reasons, um, and that is also the reason why I'm only working on on open source projects at the moment. Um, um, this and 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 work on economic models. Uh, uh, with uh, Adamant Capital, where I'm an advisor of. Uh, that's that's basically my short story. 
Excellent. And I can see from that you have a very varied background, right? You came from this banking world, but then you've also developed software for, you know, for, uh, you know, using and interacting with Bitcoin and then in, in, in the mining world as well. So quite a varied experience there. Uh, but I think it might be interesting as well just to chat a little bit on your thoughts around Rust Bitcoin, because I know you're working on that alongside some others, such as Matt Corello and Andrew Polster and some others. Yeah. Yeah, since, since I'm no longer uh, working at a digital asset and, and retired basically to, to work on open source projects on, on my, uh, as for fun, uh, I focused mostly on building uh, a library type of Bitcoin implementation uh, with uh, Rust. And um, the, the projects I, I, I mostly contributed to, to is, is this Rust Bitcoin implementation, which is, which is very, very um, interesting because of the uh, the security and quality of the language, and um, uh, people who are working on it, like Andrew Kostra or Mike, uh, Matt Corallo and others, are are quite serious about um, about these projects and quite serious about the the security promises it gives us. Um, Matt started a, a Lightning implementation, uh, which is also a library-like implementation. So uh, I would like to emphasize that all these projects are not really an alternative uh, for, to the Bitcoin node, uh, but they are really uh, built to, to help you to, build, uh, to, to create tools that interact with the network. Um, uh, so Matt Corral started the Lightning implementation, and uh, I worked, started to work on the mostly on the on the underpinning of uh, of this Lightning implementation with a light lightweight node. Uh, this I, I call it more Mormel, This project. Uh, this is basically a, um, an an SPV like uh, mode uh, node, uh, but is uh, meant to be uh, using the BIP one hundred fifty eight standard. So it, it should uh, uh, not have the privacy limitations that the current uh, SPV nodes have, but I instead use the, um, the very new uh, block filtering method that, is, that will be offered by Bitcoin Core. There are pull requests also in Bitcoin Core that introduce this service, and this Mormo library will, will, is already prepared to use it. And while, while I was building this library, I, I recognized that there is a uh, there is probably a, a need for uh, a database to store uh, uh, the Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, if you look at the, the, the current core uh, software, it is basically uh, uh, storing the Bitcoin blockchain in flat files and then storing indices to it uh, in a level DB database. Uh, so it is, a, it is a, an approach of combining two different technologies. Um, Whereas uh, the features that LevelDV offers uh, are much more than, than those uh, actually needed by the software, actually needed to, to store the blockchain. Since, for example, uh, the blockchain cannot be edited, so there is no need for a delete operation. Um, and if you have a software which, which have uh, features that are not needed, then uh, it's very likely that this software is not as optimal and as quick as it, it could be if you would not have Switches. So I started to uh, to create a database. I call it Hammersbald, which is a, a database that is only uh, able to insert uh, uh, records into uh, into basically a, a persistent hash table and store uh, the underlying data, underlying blockchain data. And this this uh, 
So this is the these are the, these are the projects I'm currently working on in the Rust Bitcoin uh, community. If you if you go to GitHub Rust Bitcoin, then you see quite a lot of other projects which are also quite exciting. Excellent. And uh, just with the Mermel, uh, could you outline a little bit there? So my understanding there is that um, there's BIP 157 and 158. One relates to the compact block filtering. And I think the other one, does it relate to the serving of them? Or could you articulate there how Mermel interacts with that? Uh, 157, 58, one is describing basically the, the network protocol and another, another is, is describing the, the actual construction of the filters. Uh, so they are they are quite uh, uh, tied to each other, and what uh, Mormel is doing is using this network protocol to communicate with a Bitcoin node uh, as soon as the Bitcoin nodes will be able to to serve these compact block filters, and also is uh, uh, implementing the, the the reading and writing of these compact block filters. Uh, the reading because it's needed to be able to filter them and the writing because as I develop the software, I, I needed something to test against. Uh, since the Bitcoin core node is not yet serving these block filters, uh, I, I, I also added the capability to, to more and more to serve them just for test purposes. So it's basically running against itself. Yeah, okay. And then how does some of these projects play into your vision of how Bitcoin will scale? Well, I... Uh, I, I do think that, that, that Bitcoins uh, will scale into smaller and smaller and, and more pur- special purpose devices. Uh, so I, I pretty much understand why it is very important that we have uh, uh, lots of full nodes and that we have the, an, a community, an enthusiastic community that ensures that uh, the forest of full nodes enforces all the rules of the network. On the other side, it is it is quite likely that we will ha- we will have to be able to build um, um, software for for restricted devices which are which would also like to con- uh, uh, connect to the network and do it in a in a manner that is even if it's not as trust uh, trustless like communicating with a bitcoin node but it's still uh, not depending on uh, Central services, or and uh, like the like like the current uh, infrastructure, which is mostly using Electrum servers, servers for example. Um, there are people who think that connecting to an Electrum service is uh, is secure, but it, that's that's quite. I, I think it's quite a misunderstanding. It's uh, it's probably even worse than than uh, doing SPV. Uh, the most uh, most frequent critic on an SPV node like that is normal is that it might uh, uh, just basically blindly follow the miner uh, by by uh, not not checking other rules. Uh, that this is this is also not quite true because what what set of rules uh, such a node really proves is 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 not limited to the proof of work. So this this um, for example, normal in, includes the um, the uh, Bitcoin consensus library from from Bitcoin Core node, so it is basically sharing the shares the same code base, uh, 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 checking transactions than the code that is checking transactions in a Bitcoin Core node. So it is it is uh, capable of doing additional uh, checks on on transactions that are not just not covered by by the SPV. Uh, uh, but SPV uh, proof that is that was originally proposed by by Satoshi, but it's it's going much further than that. 
Right. So let me just maybe just paraphrase that for some of the listeners who might not be as familiar. So in the Bitcoin community recently, there was some debate around this whole SPV versus neutrino. And uh, one example, actually, Nicola Doria came out with this idea that's saying, oh, look, I actually don't mind if you, you know, hold your key, like, so to speak, from his own selfish point of view, he didn't mind if people held their coins at an exchange, because then at least the risk is not to the system, it was localized to that user whereas he was saying look if you just use if you use a wallet that blindly follows spv then there is a risk that let's say if segwit 3x happens that your uh wallet will just blindly follow what the miners do creating that risk there that the miners would try to let's say create some fork of bitcoin and if people are not let's say, you know doing the correct running their own full node then the spv wallet will sort of blindly follows now as i understand you tamash you're saying essentially one that might not hold true in every case that uh using certain libraries or using mermal as you mentioned that there might be certain validation checks there as well so it won't just blindly follow the most yeah, proof of work chain basically this this uh, this decision whether to run a full node or run an spv node or or run a run a server testing node uh, these are uh, quite black and white categories that uh, are not not really uh, I think not really justified going forward. There is there is really a scale between uh, between the uh, just just trusting the the um, work of the miner and doing the full validation. And this scale can be filled uh, with additional checks, provided you have uh, powerful libraries that are that are. That are adding uh, uh, adding checking features that are in the code. Certainly, there are limits to that, but this is exactly what what uh, the Rust Bitcoin project is about to to create a library of of functionality that 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 uh, uh, exactly exactly follows or uh, the, the the checks uh, done in the Bitcoin node. Uh, so so you can build build software that is is as close as possible to the Bitcoin core nodes validation. But it still probably makes compromises in some areas that are um, that are not avoidable for your use case. So I, I think we will uh, we will with time, and this is this is certainly there is some uh, there is some advantage of having a homogeneous network run by the single software, um, and and certainly this is this gives a very very high uh, guarantee of consensus and. And and there is a risk of of, of having uh, a non having having uh, agents running with other software. But th- th- the fact is that we already live in in this world. So we we already have lots of different other softwares uh, connecting to the Bitcoin network using its protocol, which are not core nodes. Uh, they are, they are and and these and these software uh, has to make uh, have to make some some trade offs on in which way they. Uh, they ensure that they they uh, stay in contact or stay in consensus with the network. Uh, I, I build such a system, such systems myself, and, and, and usually what people do in the first step is is they run a run a core node uh, connected to the network, and then connect their software to the core node. So do, they ensure that basically their software is also following always following the core node's uh, 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 um, consensus. But this. Uh, 
this setup is certainly very very uh, resource intensive because you have then uh, the entire core node and additionally some data data built by your implementation which is just adding some uh, you use some some useful features um, so I I, th I think we will uh, we will get to the to an environment with more heterogeneous uh, uh, implementations uh, um, and uh, well, the, the 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 aim of this Rust Bitcoin uh, uh, library is to make sure that, uh, that these heterogeneous implementations still are very much aligned with each other so they they are they are, clo they are this library will be easy to use to build your services, but they will be really close to the Bitcoin core node. Excellent points. And I've, I've got two uh, points or questions to ring up on that, Tamash. Um, firstly, maybe it might be good for the listeners just to understand what are some examples of these, let's say, might it be for low, why would we need these sorts of things? An example might be lower power devices such as mobile phones or let's say that uh, Potomigan uh, example with the new Nayuta, I understand they were making a device. Do you have any examples there that you can share? Yeah, lower lower part devices or lower resource restricted devices are certainly a, a, a good example. Um, but even if you, let's say you just need a, a an indexing service which is uh, which is just faster or is some other in some way uh, uh, more intelligent than uh, what is available using the core indices, even then uh, it would make sense to build a. a, a a particular service to it, um, or a software direct doing it instead of, as I said, doing this layered approach of of uh, duplicating data between um, the the core node and then your your indexing service. Right, and so I guess that's an example where a Bitcoin business might use that kind of model as well. Um, so another example I was just thinking as well, there was some discussion around, uh, similar to this time with all the SPV versus Neutrino versus Full Node. There was also some commentary which I thought was quite intelligent was that maybe we also need to think of making it easier for an individual to pair their mobile device back to their full node back at home or to maybe if they're not willing to run their own full node to maybe their friend or so it's sort of like a semi-trusted scenario where yeah. maybe i trust my friend in the community and he's the technical guy maybe i'm a newbie i trust him to run the node and my phone pairs to his uh device do you have any thoughts on that idea um, well, this this is uh, these are certainly uh, scenarios which they are uh, like many wallets use this kind of setup where they, they promise to uh, or allow you to uh, to run your own service at home and then connect to it or to your friends. This is certainly also a path of uh, of uh, scaling the trust uh, within Bitcoin. But still, as I said, this is really a huge range, and we are not we are currently not exploring this range really. We we uh, we are uh, uh, many people are thinking in this community in uh, very black and white terms, and I, I think uh, yeah, we ha we just have to explore the possibilities and and see what what works for certain use cases. Okay, great. Um, so let's now um, talk a little bit about threats to Bitcoin. Now you've been around for a while. I think uh, you might have some interesting insights to share. Did you have any thoughts on um, uh, potential? You know, soft forks that could happen, or reorgs that could happen, or as threats to Bitcoin. Yeah, uh, uh, in, in our previous topic, we already uh, discussed basically the, one of the, the the biggest threats of Bitcoin is uh, is breaking the consensus, uh, splitting the network, and um, 
I think that there are uh, there are uh, a few misconceptions there too. Uh, like people uh, currently uh, uh, consider um, uh, hard forks uh, evil and hard forks uh, uh, demonstrably failing, like the Bcash project and others. Um, so there is a consensus that this is probably a wrong way to do uh, or wrong wrong way to go, and and we we want to avoid that. Uh, but there is a, I think there is a misunderstanding uh, as if uh, soft forks would be much safer. Uh, that's not, not that's not really true. So soft forks can uh, just as well split the networks as hard hard forks. Um, we had basically if you um, if a soft fork is deployed, uh, then nodes that are active that are supporting the soft fork have to actively reject. A block that is not complying the soft fork rules, and rejecting it means uh, there is a there is a chance of splitting the network. Uh, the, the the only soft fork that we, we we have seen until 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 now is is the the Segwit uh, deployment, uh, which where we actually did not see this happening uh, because the the miner were so were really um, so threatened, uh, so they're faced with such a credible threat of the community that they anonymous, uh, unanimously moved and all upgraded. So we actually ne- did not even, even see the soft fork ac- really being triggered by a block that is offending the soft fork. There was not, not, not a single block mined after, after that, that point that, that was basically offending the soft fork rules. And, and therefore, we did not even see that the software could have split the network. So we and 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 this uh, this missing experience created a, a, a perception in the in the community as if softforks would be safe; uh, they would not split the network. And and that's not correct. They can just as well split the network as hardforks. And uh, this is certainly a very very uh, very uh, pretty much the biggest threat I think to Bitcoin. It is the biggest threat because it is a technical possibility to split the network. And on the other side, it is also a technical necessity to do soft forks because uh, there are very, uh, pretty, pretty important things to fix in Bitcoin, uh, which need soft forks, uh, just like in, in increasing the privacy of Bitcoin transactions uh, is, is probably the best example. And at some point... Um, at some point in the very near future, I hope these features will be uh, rolled out with a soft fork and they will be will be hopefully going well. But I also think that this is uh, this capability of deploying features with soft forks is also something that at some point needs to be challenged uh, so, or have to be challenged. So at some point there will be a soft fork. Uh, which will not enjoy the same unanimous support of the entire community, or it will be just not well enough communicated so that some nodes will not be aware of what they have to reject. So, so at some point, we will see uh, uh, that the soft fork is splitting the network. And uh, at the point as we see it, uh, the reaction to that will be probably very similar to, than the reaction to the hard forks that we see, that the, the, this will also split the community. This will also uh, uh, create a, a, a technical upheaval, and and at some point it will basically lead to the to the 
um, insight that uh, just as the hard fork window closed at some point by seeing that this, this is not a viable not a viable way to upgrade Bitcoin, uh, the same way at some point the soft fork window will also close. And at some point thereby Bitcoin will basically ossify. And uh, the first layer will be then just as impossible to change, then it is impossible to change the TCP IP stack nowadays. Excellent insights. And I think that's a, you know, maybe that's when we'll really know it's ossified, when the first soft fork fails, right? Yeah, yeah that's ex- I think that, that will be the point. It's unfortunately, uh, it's, it will be an ugly point, but this is how we, we have seen Bitcoin uh, developing uh, uh, that the, the, the biggest... Uh, uh, or the, 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 the biggest catartic events like uh, where where we, we recognize that something is working the way it is were always linked with some disaster <laughs> and, and this will be the same at this time too yeah i'm just trying to think of what might be uh, an example of like a soft fork that you know could, this sort of scenario could occur i mean it would it just be um let's say people do not correctly coordinate and maybe 90% of the nodes in the, in the network upgraded or changed and then those other 10% just get lost? Yeah, maybe, maybe some people do not, uh, I do not care simply. Let's say we, let, let's take an example at the Casa nodes. Let's say uh, there are, there is a, there's a company uh, deploying lots of devices with full nodes implemented in them and uh, and at some point, I, I don't imply this to Casa, but I mean, such a company could go out of business, and uh, upgrading of these nodes could be stopping. And uh, so, so the customer, all the, all the retail customer who are not really Bitcoin savvy, uh, are no longer do no longer have an easy upgrade part. The the automatic upgrade is no longer working, and these 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 nodes are just tucking at a certain version, which is done then not rejecting. The blocks that should have been rejected by uh, if they would follow the soft fork. Um, so this, uh, I, I think this this will just happen by by the scale of the network. It is just not feasible to assume that uh, this network at any any scale will be still able to uh, nearly synchronously upgrade. The upgrade cycles will be longer and longer, and at some point it will, they will be practically impossible. Yeah, interesting to think about. I guess yeah, that's a good example. I just I hadn't thought of something like that, but it it totally it sounds plausible. Like eventually in the future, you know, not Casa obviously, but you know, just the idea that some node product company could go out. Yeah. Any other um, risks that you see or threats to Bitcoin that you see potentially uh, like an incentivized reorg? Yeah, there, there was a recent discussion about this topic, and and uh, I, I'm also. I also think that the idea of Binance to do the reorg at the time point they considered it was certainly uh, not feasible, and it was a uh, it was just crazy to assume that they could do they could do that. Uh, but but the the discussion whether this could be done in general uh, was sparked in the community, and uh, there are on one side it's quite clear that, uh, that there is a there's a high immunity of the uh, the network uh, due to um, uh, financial incentives and also due to the, the community's morale to to do something like that uh, on the other side we should not should never 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 say never to something that is technically possible 
and uh, a, a reorg of a, of a short distance is is very very technically possible. It is this is in fact happening all the time. Like a reorg of, of one block depth depth is a, is a regular event on the on the Bitcoin network. And if you let's if you consider the following scenario that there would be an exchange that has a cold wallet, and the cold wallet address is very well known. And somebody is for some is some way able to to get the key of the cold wallet, maybe by physical force, and uh, moving out the Bitcoin of this cold wallet, uh, then uh, this this movement uh, could have could be recognized by the exchange at the instant because they could see the transaction on the network that oh wait money is leaving your cold wallet and something is something is very wrong. Uh, or at latest, it would be recognized as it is in the first block. So basically, the alarms that there is something like this happening could go off very, very quickly. They could, it could go off within minutes. And then if you, if you have a scenario where you have just a one or two blocks of advance of the network, um, and, and, and you have the, 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 you, you can ins- uh, offer a monetary incentive to some miner to attempt a reorg. Then what I say, it is, it is technically feasible, and therefore we should not say never. And in, in such a short term f- time frame, it is, I think, even practically feasible, uh, because um, uh, the time frame would be too short to trigger the, the immune system of the community. It would be too short to, to uh, it would be easy to offer for a very short time frame a very high financial reward. Uh, to those who are participating, and I actually wrote an article about how this could be, this financial uh, reward could be uh, offered in a in a way that uh, that is basically um, forming uh, a coalition uh, to do this uh, just by offering the the reward on the blockchain. So my entire point is yes, it is it was not feasible as Binance considered it. Uh, but on the other side, being a technician, I just say hey, we should n- not say never to something that's technically possible. Right, and I, I guess the other thing there is, let's say you were some exchange and you you detected, as you said, this uh, transaction, and within like one or two blocks, you notice straight away. Would they then have to go and coordinate with a miner within the space of you know? Because we're talking like twenty minutes here, they would have to quickly like pick up the phone, call you know no, a few miners, they, and they, they do, the, the the point is they do not even necessarily have to pick up the phone because they can basically use the blockchain to communicate uh, they off their offer right they, the minor fee they, they, they could they could an exchange could even have uh, all this uh, uh, as an emergency measure set up in advance so they could have on their on their website uh, that in case we would we would have a breach in of 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 or cold wallet, we will do the following. We will issue a transaction on this page, which is offering part of the uh, the cold wallet's content uh, as a financial incentive to do uh, uh, incentivized reorg. Uh, so I think the, the feasibility if that something like this could work uh, mostly depends on the the preparedness of the actors, the exchange and the miner to act on such an offer. So if, if if basically there is a there is a standard for this offer and there is a procedure that people know how it works, then you could uh, you could communicate on the blockchain uh, your offer very quickly 
and and miner would know without calling them they could have um, they could act on it. Um, so the, the the point is, um, you know, the, the the security of Bitcoin is guaranteed by financial incentives, and uh, we 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 currently ha- we currently have a, a development of the network where the uh, the miners are following. Uh, Likely following very simple rules, they are they are just using the Bitcoin Core node and and uh, using the the in, the incentives that are or the decisions that are very obvious, like building on a, on a, on the highest block is is uh, is financially more sane than building on another one. But as the you know as the industry matures and the sophistication of actors improves. Um, the, the optimizations uh, uh, built into the mining companies, how they decide on which block they, they actually build, uh, could be could 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 take considerations into this uh, into this decision uh, that are uh, that are not not obvious to now to take, but but that are entirely financially sensible. So I, I think we should not assume that that miners. Since this is this is an industry that is that is running hundreds of millions of dollars for each 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 bigger miner, uh, this industry will will in, develop the same kind of advanced intelligence on decision uh, on how to how to act like any other industry. Right. I mean, it's probably parallel to like when banks develop all this sort of fraud technology to like block your transaction, that sort of thing. Yeah, the same same way like banks uh, uh, basically employ uh, thousands of, of, of computer scientists just to optimize uh, uh, trading uh, by observing uh, news from any. So the 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 linkage of information and decisions is is just in getting more complex as the actors are more sophisticated. Yeah, and that's a good point that you know we can't just rely on sort of everyone doing the quote unquote trying to do the right thing for Bitcoin. We have to consider seriously the risks i think at this point it's fair to say it's theoretically possible but quite unlikely in practice but as you're pointing out in the future if things develop in certain pathways it could become more likely on certain shorter time frames yeah yeah you in shorter time you can see that uh, certainly as the industry matures and 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 minor are more like uh, current corporations who have uh, responsibility to to produce a profit in a very short time frame and so on. They will have different incentives and different considerations than they have now. Mm. And I suppose there is also uh, Matt Corella's, and I understand it's soon to be renamed, but Better Hash that different uh, mining protocol. And I suppose that is one way that the uh, disconnection of the miners from the pools might somewhat uh, make it more difficult to coordinate that sort of uh, behavior. Yeah, this is this is an example of this arm race between uh, uh, the intelligence uh, that is following some some certain incentives and and the software that we try to provide to align the incentives with what we think is better better for the network. So I, I pretty much admire the work Matt Corello is doing there, but it's, it is something that is not yet really in action. Right. Yeah. Excellent. Um, look, let's switch now to another threat. I know you've written an article, so it might be good to just talk through some of this. It's, you've written an article uh, from August 2018. It's called The Case for Central Bank Controlled Digital Currencies. So do you want to just talk a little bit about the threat that that might pose? Yeah, that this is this is an economic threat to the Bitcoin, not not a technical one. Um, I, I, I think that um, it is quite feasible uh, that uh, central banks or 
one central bank will offer uh, a digital currency uh, for the main reason uh, that they they need to uh, overcome the current their current limitation that they cannot impose negative interest rates to um, uh, basically to cash. Um, and uh, if you see this team all over, they read, they, the central banks and banks in general talk about cashless society. They are trying to push the customer towards uh, towards these uh, payment methods. And uh, the, the the main motivation, the, the real motivation behind this, is not uh, not like money laundering and all and tax evasion and so on. But the main motivation is um, to be able to impose negative interest rates. And this is this is very important to the, the, the entire system. Uh, because it is um, it is the only way uh, central banks currently can press money into the market by uh, offering by offering it as a loan. Uh, but uh, these these uh, and and the the interest that that basically is in, is imposed on the on money is is basically the price of money. Okay, and since they are trying to press more money into the market to to uh, sustain the current economic system, uh, they drive down the price, so they drive down the interest. And the zero line is uh, imposing a, a, a limit there because uh, if, if they would go below zero on, on customer deposits, then people would just take out the money of the banks and, and keep it in cash. And that would basically equal a bank run and all banks would become uh, bankrupt because they have fractional reserve. So they have to create a cash system which is able to impose negative interest rates. And uh, this is where their, uh, their blockchain technology, basically uh, some, some, some kind of fork of Bitcoin's technology, uh, could help them uh, to create a payment system uh, that is able to impose negative interest rate uh, on, on the blockchain, like the transactions, the transaction fees of a transaction are actually nothing else than some kind of an interest rate. Um, and they could do the same and uh, leverage that. And that's, I think this, this, uh, this is already recognized by them. And, and, and I think it is very plausible that in a very short term frame, I mean, one or two years, uh, Bitcoin will be contended by a central bank digital currency. Some economists kind of have this crazy idea of, hey, let's go to negative rates and try to keep things sustainable. Uh, but the other question then is, how resistant will societies be? So, for example, I was just recently in Japan and I've noticed they're very much a cash-based society, but other societies are very cashless. So how do you think that sort of plays into it just culturally? I think people do not really make much thoughts about the, the payment system until it really fails. Uh, so um, uh, the, the cashless society is, is, is currently accepted by most of the people because uh, uh, the, the, the systems providing them are, uh, are not failing very frequently. Uh, but we, we already had this, this kind of events with MasterCard uh, very recently. And um, I, th I, I think that... Uh, so this is what basically determines uh, the cultural acceptance. Uh, people get used to something that is work uh, that is working and is not asking questions until it, it is failing. Maybe there are also differences in uh, experiences to uh, with regards to to, sta to state control. Or um, I, I lived in in Eastern Europe for a while, 
and uh, there people are, are using more frequently cash uh, because they are they are more sensibilized again, uh, towards uh, um, state control of their finances uh, as it used to be in in, in, in communist times. So th- these are the differences I think culturally. Yeah, and then I guess the next question then as well is why do you still believe Bitcoin would overcome some sort of central bank digital currency? As I said, I think central bank digital currencies will come <laughs> because they need it. Um, it is uh, the question if uh, where, where Bitcoin will find its place in this uh, um, new world of, uh, of competing offers. Um, I, I think that people are generally lazy uh, uh, taking the the simplest uh, the, the simplest to use approach, uh, uh, simplest to use offer, and and therefore if uh, they do not uh, if they do it right, uh, then the central bank digital currency might might also get a wide usage uh, uh, between uh, in, in ordinary daily transactions, uh, but still. Um, uh, People who would want to uh, that, that like there's a theory of good money and bad money, and <laughs> that bad money drives out good money. Uh, so people would might it, might definitely still use Bitcoin as a savings method, even if uh, the central bank of a digital currency is very convenient to to pay pay at some stores. Um, I, I so so this is this is about people, but there I I think there is a uh, the central digital currency cannot probably compete with Bitcoin. is is more in the realm of of the, of the technology. Um, the, the 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 bank system, central banks thinking, is always human centered. They think about users who are uh, paying and users who are responsible for everything. Uh, but uh, uh, use cases that are that are that are automating economic interactions between processes and between devices. Uh, will more likely use uh, a system like Bitcoin uh, that is not not linked to identities, not linked to persons. Um, so, so this, these are the these, uh, these are the areas where I think the competition will will, will run, and, and, and areas where maybe uh, Bitcoin will have a, a head start a head ahead of the digital currencies of central banks. But it's hard to tell. It's uh, it, it, at least we should be we should be aware that there will be there will be a competition. Yeah, excellent insights there, Tamash. Um, let's talk a little bit. I know you've also done um, a lot of work around Bitcoin data science, and I recently interviewed uh, Tua Demisto as well. So we talked about some of the work there. Um, but let's get some of your insights around um, some of this work that you were doing around measuring, you know, bitcoins by their last move and you know unrealized PNL. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Yeah, um, well, I, I looked at uh, at Bitcoin uh, blockchain also in a uh, from an angle which uh, which is uh, which I was taught in uh, on the trading floor, uh, looking at Bitcoin as basically a collection of transactions that are buying and selling uh, bitcoins uh, uh, between uh, basically what what we see on the Bitcoin blockchain is a record of of Bitcoin transfers. We don't see the other leg. We don't see what people get for the Bitcoin, but we see that they are transferring it. And um, my, my, my idea was there to uh, impose uh, the same uh, ideas to Bitcoin transactions than you would do to, to regular trading transactions. Uh, since Bitcoin is not only recording uh, where when a transaction takes place, but it is also recording 
what is what is the particular Bitcoin moved? Uh, so when was this particular Bitcoin last moved? Uh, you can actually calculate uh, uh, an individ- a PNL individually by every transaction, since you can you can value the Bitcoin at the time point it was last moved and at the time point now where it is moving, and you can calculate a, a, a PNL, a profit and loss uh, that this transaction means to whoever did this transaction. If you aggregate all this profit of loss together, then you basically end up with a market cap because that's the sum of all the Bitcoin movements and individual PNLs sums up to the market cap. Uh, but if you compare the market cap with the the valuation of the Bitcoin as of their last uh, acquisition, uh, then you uh, can determine basically the the, the, the unrealized PNL, uh, the the PNL that people could realize by selling it now. And uh, this unrealized PNL uh, uh, tells tells us a lot about uh, the the emotional uh, state of the Bitcoin holder because you can you can basically say you can basically see if uh, if the, in in total, the Bitcoin holder are currently sitting on an unrealized loss or an unrealized profit. And uh, this is a very important indicator that I proposed and then was used by Element Capital's latest uh, uh, newsletter uh, or latest uh, uh, paper. Uh, it's called uh, Bitcoin Heavy Accumulation Phase. Um, so this this really helps us to, to, to helps them and I'm an advisor of them so it helps us to to time the market. Um, and another concept that this is an interesting concept another concept I developed is the I called it the liveliness. The Bitcoin liveliness um, is basically a ratio of uh, um, Bitcoin days burned in a uh, uh, in a transact uh, Bitcoin days burned until a a point with all Bitcoin days ever created. So you could you could say uh, if you you could calculate what would be the total number of Bitcoin days if they if, if there was never ever been a Bitcoin transaction, <laughs> and you can calculate what is the burn until now. And if you if you uh, uh, calculate the ratio of these two measures, then basically you come up with something that I call a liveliness. I call it liveliness because it's a measure between zero and one, and uh, liveliness of zero would would be a blockchain where you have an initial coin offering and never ever a transaction, and the liveliness of one would be a blockchain where in a single block all coins are moving. So this is basically gives you a, it gives you a, a measure of how active a certain blockchain is, how economically active a certain blockchain is. And it's also a measure that is very difficult to forge because if you, you you cannot just take the same coin and move million times, that doesn't really add up to liveliness because the same coin cannot acquire new days to burn. And therefore, the, the subsequent wash transactions do not really change the liveliness measure. So the liveliness measure is, is very, very useful to first look at the Bitcoin, but it's also very useful to look at other currencies. I, I personally propose this uh, measure, but I'm not really interested in looking into other, other, other coins. I hope somebody does it and, and implements the liveliness measure for Bitcoin Cash and other shit coins. Um, <laughs> we, we, will, we, would, we would definitely see a huge difference to Bitcoin. But the liveliness measure is very, very useful within Bitcoin already. 
because uh, you can also take the the reciprocal meaning of liveliness. You could say what is not live is something that is huddled. So you can take the liveliness measure and calculate a kind of uh, measure of uh, coins that are not moving, that are huddled by long-term investors or or is or have been lost. And if you look at, uh, at these changes of liveliness within a short period of time, then you could, uh, by, by calculating differentials between the liveliness, uh, you can basically calculate the movements of the huddled coins. And this is also a, a method that I proposed and now is using, used by Edmund Capital to, to time the market. So we, we can observe with the liveliness measure uh, the movement of the hodler, with, who are probably most influential uh, 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 actors in the Bitcoin uh, economy. So, so it helps us to, to, to see how they are basically uh, acquiring or accumulating or liquidating positions. Okay, thanks for that explanation around liveliness. And I think particularly interesting was this point you made around measuring the individual P&L of a specific output as it moves on the blockchain. Uh, and then another complexity that I think you touch on is this complexity of dealing with large custodian moves because that can give a so-called false signal. Uh, yes, uh, the, the liveliness is certainly... Um flagging uh, movements uh, of, of custodians, uh, considering them as uh, being basically hodlers, the cold wallets look like hodlers. Um, and these moves um, can, um, and I, I think I, I proved in a, in a certain uh, case, uh, actually trigger a market reaction. I, I'm quite sure that I'm not the first one uh, who thought of uh, measuring uh, the movement of, of, of hodlers, eventually not with a liveliness, but with some similar measure. And therefore, I, I, I think that um, large movements were already uh, were spotted by traders who are observing the blockchain, and, as in, uh, as, and, and their observation were, was driving their trading decisions. And this is what we could see, um, in my opinion, in uh, last December, where uh, Coinbase is, is, uh, was reshuffling their cold wallet and this uh, cold, cold wallet reshuffling uh, was quite, quite obviously triggering uh, a sell-off in the market. Um, I, I think this is, uh, this is mainly because the, uh, the, the fact of the reshuffling was communicated after the fact and even though Coinbase was uh, basically bragging that they are they executed this uh, th this uh, huge move in a in a very uh, very coordinated and and, and stealthy fashion, uh, that was not actually the case because the, the blockchain does record all these moves and 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 if, if somebody was observing a measure like the liveliness, um, he would have probably traded on it. So this this basically teaches us that uh, movements of of large stashes of Bitcoin uh, on the blockchain can have uh, market moving effects, and therefore they should be communicated in beforehand. Interesting stuff, because then it's it's sort of this uh, stewardship argument that it's this com you know blockchain as a commons and certain aspects of transparency that an exchange should. Uh, undergo but then at the same time there might be certain risks that that poses as well to their own hot wallets and their private you know their own security setup as well um 
Yeah. And I think another interesting thing that comes up with this whole discussion around liveliness, and I think uh, this actually came up for the listeners, this came up on my discussion with Tour de Mista as well, but I'd be interested to hear your take on this as well, was the, you know, if we get into the psyche of the investor or the hodler, and they are underwater for a few years, or maybe not underwater, but they're down from their all-time high. And then what was it that you noticed that as the price crept back up to the what was the previous all-time high was that you noticed that some of those hodlers were now kind of cashing in or locking in some gains. Can you articulate that? Yeah, the, uh, the liveliness uh, measure also gives us information of their uh, shift of uh, investment behavior. And it, it actually... Um, shows us what is uh, what was intuitively assumed beforehand um, that most of the holders were ac- uh, accumulating bitcoins during the, um, the the bear market phase of 2014 and 15 and 16 and uh, they actually began uh, liquidating their positions once uh, the, the new market high was reached um, what is bit in, but is interesting to see that the, the liquidation was actually triggered quite early. So there there were quite a few hodlers who were really riding the uh, the bull uh, market to the end. Uh, but most of the liquidations happened actually early in the bull market phase. Um, and then after uh, the after the the crash and begin or end of two thousand seventeen, um, we again so. Uh, that accumulation is taking place. And uh, this is what is articulated also in this report. Basically, we think that Bitcoin is currently in a, is in a heavy accumulation phase. Fantastic. And I think one corollary there. So again, past performance, etc. is not the same as future performance. But if we were to assume that same kind of uh, psyche were to apply, then if we see the price of right now so sitting around 8000 USD as we record this in May 2019 if the price were to now come back closer to 20000 which was the previous all time high then we might anticipate another another round of selling by some of the uh, OG or the hodlers well if if history is a, is a guide there then we could assume that but fortunately we have the the liveliness measure, so we can basically observe this in in real time. So we can see, we, we will see very, pretty much, uh, if it is really happening or not. Yeah, excellent insights there. And um, I think it might be interesting now if you have any uh, anything to share on perhaps any future Bitcoin blockchain data science that you're you're looking into at the moment. Uh, well, I'm I'm. Um, I'm currently looking into the the wealth distribution of uh, Bitcoin. Uh, this is a topic that uh, uh, lots of people are interested in, it and it also uh, uh, creates lots of criticism around Bitcoin. Um, the question I would like to answer is how how unequal is the wealth distributed with Bitcoin? It's certainly in, unequal, just like in any other economy. Uh, but uh, the question is, is it really worse or, or better in the sense of equality if compared with the fiat, with fiat currencies or, or, or uh, well-known economies? <coughs> to answer these questions, I'm currently working on a, on a methodology to, to cluster uh, the uh, unspent coins 
And uh, this is not, not really about de-anonymizing, it's really about clustering, figuring out which coins are probably closer to each other. So what um, um, basically creating a, a wealth distribution or a histogram of wealth distribution. Yeah, it's fascinating how some of these works, they just sort of build on top of each other, right? So at the start, it was Bitcoin days destroyed, then it was HODL waves, then it's liveliness. And now it's sort of getting to the level of trying to ascertain what is the genie coefficient. Now, I think many Bitcoiners, they're and some commentators have made this point as well, that I think the intuition is that Bitcoin is spreading out over time, right? It started out very, very unequal, but it is spreading out over time. But I suppose that's essentially the question you're trying to prove out or answer. Is that true or is that false? Yes, exactly. And that's, that's I think it was a very interesting question. And it's probably also telling us about uh, Bitcoin's pro- uh, future prospect. If it is not... If it would not spread out, that would be a bad news for this economy. Mm, right. I suppose I think maybe some level of inequality will always be there. But uh, you're right. I think it may it may sort of still spread out from what was an extreme inequality. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Look, I think um, that's pretty much all we've got time for, Tomas. But I, I have to say it's been a really, really interesting, honestly, very interesting conversation and just so wide ranging as well. I mean, we've covered Rust, Bitcoin, we've covered threats to Bitcoin, we've covered Bitcoin data science. Just also, lastly, before we let you go, if you've got any uh, closing thoughts for the listeners and also, obviously, before we let you go, make sure you tell them where they can find you online. Well, I'm, uh, my, my recent thoughts you find online. So you find with me with my real name on Twitter, on GitHub, and on Medium. Um, and I would love if uh, the listeners would, would check out these sources. Excellent. Well, look, thank you very much for coming on the show again. Thank you much. Bye-bye. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview. And as always, if you enjoyed it, make sure you rate, review, and share the podcast. You can find the show notes on my website, stefanlevera.com. This is episode 73. That's it from me. Thanks, guys. See you next time.